everyone. I'm David Beats, and welcome to the On The Map podcast. Today we spoke with Hope Schultz of Madam. Uh, Hope has some really interesting things to say about how she helps uh, brands to connect with the female demographic. Uh, she has really good insight into how women make purchasing decisions. So we're going to hop right into our conversation with Hope Schultz. Hi, Hope. Uh, thanks for joining us today. wonder if you could tell us a little bit about uh, your background and uh, what you do at Madam. Uh, absolutely. So um, I have a company called Madam, and it um, was designed specifically to help brands, um, in many cases, retailers, consumer packaged goods companies, kind of building off of my background, which I'll share with you in a second, um, to help them really forge more meaningful, um, long-term loyal relationships with women. And, you know, oftentimes we think that women make up the majority of the marketplace, which they do. But the challenge is, is understanding the dynamics of how we make decisions and how we think about things and how we connect with brands, which is very different than, than in many cases, very different than men do. So as I'm sure you guys can attest to. So, um, but just to give you a little background, um, I spent, I don't know, sometimes I hate to even admit it, but close to 20 years in the advertising industry and working on okay. like for big companies like Unilever, Kraft, um, PepsiCo, Kimberly-Clark, Procter & Gamble um, on a variety of different types of projects, um, mostly for consumer packaged goods types of products like Philadelphia cream cheese and Huggies and um, innovation projects for PepsiCo and things like that. So it's been pretty diverse and very interesting. And I'm also a little bit of an entrepreneur as well. Um, I started a company called WebVet, which was, um, many people kind of equated it to the WebMD for pet owners. Um, that's just a passion, pro was a passion project for me that actually turned into a legitimate business because okay. I'm an animal person. And, um, but I really, over the years, I found that I kind of gravitated towards really helping these brands understand how to connect with women because it's so integral to their business and so important to successful outcomes. And it's just something that, that I've enjoyed doing over the years and, and I look forward to continue doing. Awesome. Very cool. Um, well, yesterday we chatted a little bit. You talked some about your work with uh, Lowe's Hardware. Can you tell us um, some about your experience of working with them and maybe some changes that you helped them to make? Yeah, absolutely. So I worked with Lowe's when I worked for an organization called Frank About Women um, that was based in North Carolina. And that was part of the Interpublic group of companies. And um, Lowe's got in touch with us because as you can imagine in the home improvement sector, and so you basically have two major players there. You've got Lowe's and you've got Home Depot. And you know, a big part of their focus has been contra general contractors, men as one would naturally be the obvious target. Um, but what we started to, to realize, and they started to realize over time, is that there's so many DIY projects at home that women were starting to engage with. So they really wanted to come up with ways to make the shopping experience for women when they came into the store um, more pleasant and easier to navigate. And so we did a whole body of research with them in specific categories to start. So we did some overall general work saying, okay, what does that experience feel like for me as a woman when I come in? And of course, as a competitive entity, how do I compare and contrast that to the experience they have with Home Depot? And so just some top line things that we learned were that women really did prefer shopping at Lowe's over Home Depot. And there were a couple of key drivers of that. One is that they, they would say to us, when I walk into the store in Lowe's and I ask them where something is, they take me there. 
when I walk into the store of a Home Depot, um, I ask where something is and they point. And so it's meaningful to me to have somebody actually help me navigate this huge big box retailer when in a category that I'm not so familiar with. Uh, one of the other things that they mentioned was the aisles at Lowe's were much wider. So if I'm a mom and I'm in there with my stroller and trying to navigate with kids, um, it made it easier for me. And they're also the, the way they merchandised, the way they stacked the shelves, they didn't stack them as high as Home Depot did. Um, and it made it easier for women to access certain products without having to go seek help. Um, in particular, we did some work around Valspar, which was at that time their proprietary paint um, line and understanding how women engaged with paint selection and how to merchandise that to them and how to promote paint, um, as well as worked in the appliance sector. So I don't know if years ago you would go in and you would see like lines of refrigerators and lines of um, of stovetops and ovens and lines of dishwashers. You still see that to a certain extent, but now you'll see these vignettes. So you'll actually see, actually see a vignette of a kitchen because women are incredibly visual. And so what we really wanted to see was, what is this gonna look like in my home? So you started to see a lot more of that taking place, kind of bringing that experience and that vision to life to help her make some purchase decisions. Okay. Very good. And, yeah. and how do we talk some about kind of how certain products are viewed, um, especially inside the grocery store. Um, can you tell us what you learned about um, cream cheese? You, you kind of had an interesting story around that. Yeah, this is my, this is my um, Philadelphia cream cheese story. So I've actually worked on that brand probably four different times um, on behalf of four different agencies as the business moved along. Um, and I happen to be a huge Philly cheese lover, which, um, really helps you when you're going through this process, especially as a woman. So um, we did a ton of research around how women make choices when it comes to cream cheese and how they use it. And the one real interesting insight that came out of that was we found out that there's the purchase decision. So how do you make the decision between a generic cream cheese and a Philly cream cheese, which is a premium and obviously slightly at a premium price? What we learned is that there's a difference between right. ingredient and an ingredient, and your use of, of cream cheese will dictate um, which brand you purchase. So there are some diehard Philly cream cheese you know, lovers who are always going to buy that brand. But for the majority of the time when we talked to women, we found out that if it was an ingredient, so let's say you were spreading on a bagel that they would spend the extra money for the Philadelphia cream cheese because the cream cheese was the hero. And right. when you, versus if you're baking using cream cheese, they would resort to buying the generic brand because if you were part of something bigger, then they weren't really gonna, the taste was not gonna be as important. So it was a very, very interesting insight for us to understand that there were different, um, scenarios where people would be more inclined to purchase Philadelphia cream cheese versus a generic brand. So, which I always thought was really fascinating. Yeah, that is interesting. And, and aren't some of those generic brands actually made in the same factories as like the name brands? You know, I've heard that. Um, and yeah. it, I guess is it's true, but I, I don't know that definitively, but that yeah. surprised me. You know, I mean, look, right. it's all about the branding and, and that's what we know, yeah. you know, so you can have, 
an equal or even lesser product, but if you do a better job of, of establishing and seeding that brand and creating that emotional connection, because as women, we want to feel like we're always giving our families the best. Right. And, yeah. And whether or not it is truly the best sometimes doesn't matter. Um, it's right. just the fact that we feel that we're doing that. And it's that's just that, right. That perception of the best. Yeah. 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 Um, and then you also did some work with um, what an automotive, what was it like, um, like a pet boys or something like that? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I worked for pet boys automotive several years back okay. and um, it was interesting. You know, I'm not a huge car person and I probably am not the likely choice to work on an automotive brand, but right. it was fascinating because I recall sitting across the table from the president of um, Pep Boys one day and him talking about, well, why do we really, we were brought in by the CMO and the president looked at me and said, well, why do we really need to worry about marketing to women? And I said, well, actually, because 69% of automotive aftermarket, sorry, products and services are purchased by women. So, you know, you mentioned earlier on about 85% of all purchases are typically made by women. That's really right. where they're actually made or they're influenced by women. But we have okay. a in 85% of all purchases that are made. But I think it was really shocking and surprising for him to hear that women were a really poor target for them. And the other thing right. that we learned in that process is that there's a lot of men who really don't understand the automotive sector either. So we, we've learned this over the years that if you market to women and you do so successfully, because our expectations tend to be much higher, now it might vary by category. Let's just take, you know, buying a car. Sometimes men's standards are higher than women's. It just depends on what, what the purpose is. But what we learn is that if you look at the spectrum of communication, by the time you get the woman, you know, aligned with your brand and committed, you've got the man, you got him along the way. You know, so if you get the women, yep. yeah, residually, you're going to get the majority of the population. So. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Um, and so, um, you know, with with all that's going on right now, I know um, there's a lot of attention on uh, food banks right now. And I know you've done some some different work what, with uh, Feeding America um, and maybe some some local food banks like in the Chicago area. Maybe you could talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. It's been uh, the work that I've done in the in the hunger relief se sector has been really uh, very gratifying over the years. I got involved um, years ago during the transition of the kind of the rebranding initiative of Feeding America. It was okay. formerly known as America's Second Harvest. Um, what we realized is, is that unless you're a farmer, you don't really know what a second harvest is. Um, mm -hmm. so it, there was some confusion about the role of the organization. And okay. in Feeding America, for those who don't know, oversees a majority. They're kind of, kind of like the NFL is to the, fo to the football teams. So they're kind of this governing body, and they're there to help them advance. But they don't own them, and they don't make all the decisions for them. So they're kind of independent units. So it's more of an association type of model. But so I worked on okay. the rebranding from America's Second Harvest to Feeding America. Um, but most recently, I've started to do some work with the Northern Illinois Food Bank. Um, as you can imagine, during, you know, with the coronavirus and everything that's going on, putting food on the tables of the people who need it the most is very challenging, especially with schools shutting down. I mean, for many of those kids, 
when they go to school and get a, a hot lunch, that's oftentimes the only meal that they get during the, the day. We also right. initiated yeah. backpack programs because imagine when the kids go home for the weekend and they're not getting that school lunch, how are they getting you know, nutritional meals? So we would literally stuff backpacks full of nutritional food and send the kids home with them. And um, what we learned is that they were not only feeding themselves, but they were helping to feed their entire family. So, wow. Wow. Uh, so the work, especially right now, is incredibly, incredibly important. And the role that, you know, all of the people in the indus industry, you know, the manu food manufacturers, the Kraft Heinzes of the world, and um, all of those people and the grocery stores who are all in that part of that supply chain, you know, their role in contributing to this right now is really, really important. Now, are some food banks doing some things with like online ordering? Because I, I was under the impression that a lot of young people are maybe a little afraid to go to a food bank, um, even if they really need to. And, and maybe there are some things that the food banks are doing to, to kind of reach those people a little bit better. Yeah, I was, um, to, to, to respond to one thing you just said, it's not just young people. I do think that millennials and Gen Z tend to, to be very proud, but I think you see that across the board. I mean, there, there are groups of people that don't have a choice, but they're in their minds there is a stigma attached to going and asking mm -hmm. for help. So yes, as a matter of fact, the Northern Illinois Food Bank has an incredibly innovative program that I, when I first heard about it, I was like, wow, why is this not you know, being implemented more broadly? Um, they actually, it's called My Pantry Express, and you can actually go online and think of it kind of like Instacart, but food banks are the distributors of the food. So you can go online on My Pantry Express, you can actually pack your box of the foods that you need for your family. Now they will say limited to two cartons of milk or, you know, so they do put limitations because they want to make sure that as many people get served as humanly possible, but you basically pack your box. You no longer have to go to a food bank or a food pantry to pick them up and some, like in this case, stand in very long lines. Um, you can actually, they have major distribution points through schools, churches, Walmarts, um, and some other retailers. So you literally place your order online and then they tell you pick up, pick, you choose a pickup window. So it's very similar to an Instacart. And then you go, you pull up, you give them your information, your order number, and they load it into your car for you. So wow, it's an amazing cool. program. Yeah, very and, cool. We'll, we'll definitely have to put that um, in the show notes. Um, as, as far as grocery stores, you know, marketing to women, when, when you walk into a grocery store, how do, you, how do you recognize when a grocery store is doing a good job at it? And that's a really good question. And I think you get a lot of um, different answers when you talk to different people, especially women, because we all kind of have our patterns. You know, like we have different ways we shop. Some of us are what I would call a mission shopper. You know, I come in with five things, I know where I'm going and I'm like, boom, 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 boom. And I, and I pick them up and I'm out of there. Um, but then there's what we call butterfly shoppers. You know, there's the woman that goes up and down every aisle because even though we make a list, we always are forgetting things. You know, we'll go right. home and go, I can't believe I forgot that, you know? So, so women have different shopping patterns. And, but some of the challenges that we're, we're hearing that retailers are facing and that we're hearing from women that they would like to find, solution, find solutions to is that it's very difficult oftentimes to find what you're looking for. 
And if you've got a time constrained mom who's, you know, popping into the grocery store on her way to school to pick up the kids or take them to soccer practice, I don't have time to be searching the aisles for something, especially if I'm in a market that's not all that familiar to me. Um, right. And I think what you find, and I can talk a lot from personal experience as well, you know, you search and you search and you can't find it. And then you search for somebody who can actually direct you and you can't find that either. And right. I can't see how many times I've gone to the guy at the deli counter and asked him and he's like, or the meat counter, you know, who have specialty areas. And I'm like, can you point me in the direction of this? And they're like, I have no idea where that is. Right. So yeah. Yeah. There's that kind of whole, you know, search out the products that I need. But there's also the whole experiential piece, which I can't impress upon anyone enough about how important that is with women. Because the minute from the moment you you pull into the parking lot, and this is just the way our brains work, you know, the minute mm -hmm. you pull into the parking lot, it's how accessible is parking? You know, how far do I have to walk? If I've got kids, if it's raining, okay, then once I get into the store, do I even know which side to start on? You know, I don't know if you've ever walked into a grocery store and you've gone, okay, do I start right? Do I start left? Right, yeah. Yeah. Differently. And then when you walk into some of these really large grocery stores, you just, you're kind of overwhelmed and you don't know where to go. So creating a more intimate experience, allowing her to find ways to customize that experience, giving her different locations in the store to purchase the same product. So for example, let's say I was wanted to purchase a bag of Stacy's pita chips. Um, you know, give me the opportunity if I'm going down that snack aisle to be able to grab a bag there. But if I'm in the deli and looking at hummus and other things like that, you know, it's a merchandising issue. So how are you kind of providing context for that eating experience by clustering like products together? So I've got my Stacy's pita chips, I've got my hummus, I've got what a, another dip I might use, but give me multiple locations, make it easy for me to find, make it accessible, make people, live human beings accessible, but really creating that more intimate, customized experience for me is going to go a long way. And when I yeah. say me, I'm, I'm obviously speaking for women. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. You know, what, one thing that we do in our database is, you know, we track square footages you know, of new stores um, kind of through the development process. Uh, do you think that smaller stores cater more to women? I mean, are they, I mean, is there, is there something about a smaller store that's more attractive? Absolutely. I mean, hands down. So yeah. a, it's, it's a warmer, cozier environment. And I'll, I'll give you an example in a, in a minute, but it's a, it's an easier in, easier out. It's a quicker shopping experience. Um, right. it, you know, the women tend to, I mean, you think about Costco and you know, I, I think Costco is amazing. It's kind of a fun experience to go have, but like once a month. So, you know, if I go to Costco, right. purchase certain types of items, like bulk items, and, um, you know, I, I go there, I buy toilet paper, I buy paper towels, I buy wine because they've got an amazing selection. I, you know, so there's certain things that you go to Costco to buy, but you don't go there every twice a week or whatever, because it's not that convenient um, for everyone. Right. But to, to be able to have a combination of that experience to serve one need and then marry that with a more intimate, um, warmer, cozier, engaging experience, almost like you 
I would equate it to like Ace Hardware versus a big box. Um, right, yeah. Or Lowe's. I, as a woman, I love going into an Ace Hardware store because I feel like I'm in my grandfather's workshop. Right, and yeah. I feel yeah. like my grandfather's the guy in every aisle who's answering my questions. So in grocery, it's the same thing. It's like, give me a place that feels as close to home as I can get because it is, I am creating, again, when I go home, it's my job as a mom or a wife or just a, a single individual to create this kind of homey environment. And I think that smaller footprint, uh, that more intimate footprint that gives me what I need um, in conjunction with some of my, and, and that's what I think you're starting to see people shop at a number of re, you know, different sources. So as opposed to going to a jewel and getting everything. Um, so I do think that that's yeah. very important to women. Yeah, especially right now, you know, with everything that's going on. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, what, what, you, you know, we, we interviewed, uh, Mark Coyman recently and, and I understand you guys, guys work together. Uh, and he talked some about how grocery is trending more towards, uh, kind of community centered, smaller brands. Um, are, is that something that you're seeing or kind of, how does that tie into the, to the whole equation? Yeah. I, and, and Mark is dead on. I mean, you see it across multiple categories. You know, you see it in the hotel sector, you see it in a lot of different categories, but you really are seeing it in the grocery sector about, again, it goes back to building a sense of community. I'll give you a perfect example. So I live in Chicago and mm -hmm. the first Whole Foods store here was just um, south of North Avenue. It's quite large, um, but it's an experience. It's not a you know, it's not just a grocery experience. It is right. a family experience. It's a community experience. So if you go into that Whole Foods, you know, you've got what I call the kid's corner. So when mom comes into shop, she can drop the kids off at kid's corner. There's like a little storyteller there. The kids are all sitting around having a good time. They're, they can draw, they can color at these tables. Um, they've got a, a coffee bar. It's not a Starbucks inside of a Whole Foods, but it's a it's a really lovely coffee bar. Um, there's a wine right. bar in my Whole Foods, and you actually see people pushing their shopping carts holding a glass of wine. You see people stopping, chatting. I mean, I can bet you that there are people that spend well over an hour in that store, if not longer. Um, and it's not just shopping. So it is creating this upstairs, there's actually um, tables where you can go like you might in a Starbucks and set up your computer and work um, remotely. But I see people sitting at the coffee bar doing the same thing. So they've done an amazing, amazing job of creating an environment that is inviting, that delivers the type of experience that they're looking for. You know, they know the name of the guy who tends the bar, you know, and serving wine. They know the name of the barista who's making their cup of coffee. They know the guy behind the deli. So it's really a much more personal, engaging experience. Right. Yeah. I will tell you one thing, though, that's very interesting that, that we've all noticed as of late, and I will say particularly women, um, because mm -hmm. I do think that when men are grocery shopping, they tend to be more mission shoppers. They know very specifically what they want. They go, they get it, they're in, they're out. Right. Um, you know, so we always say that men think in a very linear fashion. So it's like, boom, point A to point B. Um, women actually think very circuitously. 
So we kind of go from here and then we ask this and then we talk to our friend about that and then we come back here and then in the end we make our decision. And, but we have a different path to that in, in that decision-making process. But what we've noticed in the Whole Foods is that with um, the acquisition by Amazon, it, the experience is changing. So right. you're yeah. overrun by Amazon shoppers. And look, they're doing their job because, you know, the quicker that they pack the groceries and deliver it, the, more, the quicker they can get to the next job because this is their livelihood. But the problem is, is it's, right. it's, um, it's denigrating the quality of the experience that we're accustomed to having in that Whole Foods. And so people are going to different markets. Like I've recently started shopping at Plum Market. Um, and that mm. experience has been amazing. And they've done a lot, especially during the coronavirus um, situation, to let me as a customer know that they actually care about my well-being. And, and I think that's really important, but we're trying to get away from the crowds and get into a smaller, more personal experience. Right. Yeah. I think I read yesterday that Amazon had turned their newest grocery store. I think it's up in well, maybe Westwood. I'd have to look and see, but they had turned it into basically a delivery only. I mean, it's only for Amazon shoppers to go in there and, and get the groceries and then deliver them. Um, I thought that was pretty Yeah, well, that's probably a smart thing to do. And frankly, it could be the result of pushback that they're getting. I mean, right. the manager at the Whole Foods um, here in Chicago, just because he's that kind of guy and yeah. super nice guy. And, you know, we all sit around and think, oh my God, he's probably having a coronary right now because, you know, he knows his customers, his long-term loyal customers, and he knows this is making us all crazy. Right. So hopefully yeah. that's just Amazon's response to, figuring out how to still deliver that service, which is great, but keep it separate and not have it, you know, denigrate the experience that we've all grown accustomed to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, with, with this whole pandemic that we're in and, and your understanding of marketing, um, who, who do you think's doing it right and, and who's doing it wrong? Because, you know, I, I, I told you earlier, I saw a, a commercial for Cadillac the other day and it said like, we've got your back. And it was just like, it just, it just felt very hollow to me. Um, and yeah. It's, it's very contrived and it's the same thing that they're all saying. So mm -hmm. I will tell you the one that stands out to me is Allstate. Um, Tom Wilson, who is their CEO, um, is an amazing guy just on all fronts. Um, I've done some work for Allstate um, over the years, but just a, a really genuinely authentic guy. And I saw him come on the television and He's not like, gee, we're the best provider during these stressful times, you know, switch from State Farm to us. What he's saying is, is look, you know, times are tough for everyone. You're, we know you're not driving your car like you were before. You know, right. you're, you're on yeah. lockdown, you're being isolated. So we are going to refund a percentage of your automotive premiums. Right. And, and I thought, wow, thank you very much. You know, I'm not an Allstate customer, but I probably will become one. Um, right. I'm actually a State Farm customer and State Farm came out two weeks probably after Allstate launched this initiative and said the same thing. But I'll tell you, no one from State Farm has reached out to me to tell me they're refunding anything to me. Right. So, yeah. so that's another point is if you, if you get on national television and start telling people this is what you're going to do, you need to deliver on that promise because if you right. don't, you're going to see people like me going, okay, I've been a State Farm customer for probably 25 years. 
Mm -hmm. All I can think about is, gee, maybe I should become an Allstate customer. Right. Which is a, a really interesting statistic, just kind of as an aside to throw out there, is that, and this is just the way we think, 89% of women will switch brands if that brand is aligned with a purpose or a cause that is important to her and her family. And that is my right. to a lot of people. And, that, and, and it doesn't have to be all things equal. But it's just, especially in this day and time, we are looking for those brands that are truly authentic, that care about the community, that care about our families, um, you know, and aren't just saying, hey, gee, buy a Cadillac or, you know, whatever brand today and we'll defer your payments for three months. Right. That's yeah. serving you, not serving me. I mean, yeah, might it help me if I'm really in dire need of a new car right at this point in time? But that's not serving me. And that's, so I think in answer to your question, Allstate's doing an amazing job. It'd be interesting to understand, you know, a little bit more about your, your conservation work. I've seen a little bit of, 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 a, of a, uh, a couple of your pictures. I think you do some stuff in Africa. Is that right? Yeah. So I, as, as I mentioned, when we were talking about WebVet, I'm a huge animal fanatic. I come by it naturally. My whole family is that way. And um, so I, I got involved, I started going, just traveling to Africa for pleasure. And I'm also, I shoot a lot of wildlife photography. So I started traveling to Africa about 10 years ago and fell in love. I mean, love of my life, you know, type of, type of situation. So um, I then actually, the woman that I had worked with at Feeding America became the CEO of an organization in Chicago called Opportunity International. And they okay. did micro lending. They do micro lending in developing countries. Um, she called me and asked okay. me to come over and become her chief marketing officer. So, um, and the lure was hope. It's women, girls, Africa, all these things that you're so passionate about and you love that type of work. So, I was like, absolutely, I am so on board. So, um, I worked with that organization, did a lot of work, took a lot of. Um, donors to the organization on what we called insight trips to Africa so they could actually experience um, the impact of their investment. Um, so we would go into these rural villages in Rwanda and, and, um, and also like in Kenya and Tanzania. We also did work in India and I was just thinking about Bogota, Colombia because which was also a very interesting experience. Um, but right. that just kind of fueled my passion for Africa and and that combined with my love of conservation and, and appreciation for everything that's going on um, impacting climate change and all of that I I started my own nonprofit um, and I personally started to get involved in trying to get the money to the people on the ground in a more expedient fashion than you might find when you go through a nonprofit organization just for obvious reasons so I kind of started calling myself a matchmaker between people who had money and a desire to help with people on the ground who really needed funding yeah. to build schools, to you know, um, buy school books, to put school lunches, um, make them available to the kids, to help female entrepreneurs, um, all of that, smallholder farmers. You know, we worked across a, a variety of sectors. Um, and I just kind of spiraled into me getting very involved in development of a program called Conservation 360. And we ended up doing a study abroad program this past January for the University of Virginia, where they focused on conservation finance. And okay. they actually went to an amazing 
um, Conservancy in Lycopia, Kenya, and they became consultants to the Conservancy and they identified major problems facing conservationists today. And part of their program was to provide solution, viable solutions to things like human wildlife conflict. Um, so it's, it is, as you can tell, it's a passion project for me. But it's right. really yeah. so important because it's all inextricably linked. You know, our ability to get food to people, our ability, it's all inextricably linked to, um, to conservation and climate change and all of that. So it's all very important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll definitely include some links to that um, in, in, the, in the show notes um, if people want to get in touch with you and learn more about um, those, those different groups that you're working with. Yeah. Um, yeah. I had I wanted to touch back two other things. Uh, you had mentioned uh, a little bit about working with a real estate developer in Atlanta to kind of better understand the neighborhood and, and the trade area um, that they were going to be focusing on. Can you maybe talk about that a little yeah, bit? Yeah, um, we, um, we worked, we had conversations with a, a real estate developer in Atlanta uh, just to be, we, we never actually executed the project for them. Um, for I because I think right. yeah. a lot started coming down the pipeline and but our initial conversations with them were about Helping them understand the dynamics of the community in which they were developing. They had recently purchased a development um, in the Atlanta area and They were there were challenges. Um, there were a lot of very high-end uh, retailers that came in there and while you think that that's gonna be really attractive to people. And again, this is really uh, why it's so important to understand the dynamics of the people that live in your trade area. Um, or if you're in a transit right. situation, the dynamics of those personalities and, and their brand affinities. Um, because what might seem like a novel, interesting um, concept um, is not sustainable over the long term. Mm -hmm. So our approach to that is really uh, and this just lends itself to all of the work that we do, whether it's in, in real estate development, whether it's on the retail side of things, whether it's in the hotel sector, whether it's in financial services, it doesn't matter. The approach is always the same, which is you need to not start with, you, you start with your business objectives and your vision, your long-term vision, but you're never gonna be successful unless you understand the dynamics of the people that you are trying to basically your customers or your consumers, the people you're trying to sell to or the people that you're trying to bring into the franchise. Because no matter, right. you know, I always tell people I have an opinion on pretty much everything, but I'm not convinced that my opinion is always right. And what right. really yeah. matters is what your customer thinks. I'm less concerned with what you believe to be true. I respect it. But I'm more concerned with what your customer believes to be true, what they're looking for. What is the job that they need done? And what can you provide to facilitate the successful completion of that job? And that, those learnings come from consumer insights. It comes from talking to the consumer. It's understanding the dynamics of the trade area. What types of products are they buying? The people that live in your trade area, what are they buying? What, what type of sales um, are, they, are people selling that product, achieving in that trade area? Um, what are the emotional connections? Right. Because it's really important to understand that Functional benefits are great. You know, I need to um, saw a, a piece of board in half, so I need a saw. But it, what's more important to me is what am I going to do with that board? Am I using that board to build a treehouse for my kid? Right. You know, so, so you have to be able to ladder it up from functional benefit up to, um, you know, 
um, emotional benefit and then up to kind of that emotional, what Mark Coyman would call the emotional ignition point, um, which is what is right. that thing that connects you? So I call it, how do you create brand love? Right. You know, that's what it's right. all about. And you need people to love your brand in order to um, buy your products and keep them engaged mm -hmm. with your organization, your brand, to keep them purchasing your products and build that long-term sustainable relationship over time. Yeah, we, you know, we, we spend a lot of time tracking um, dead deals in our database as well. Um, you know, places, stores were planned, or grocery stores were planned, and then they, the deal died. Um, and so I think to your point, understanding that customer, understanding that trade area is really important you know, from the very beginning, um, understand who you're targeting. Um, so you, you also mentioned a, um, a Kmart that you work with in Key Largo. Um, yeah. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that's, um, that's a pretty good um, prototype for what I'm talking about. So I did quite a long stint with working with Kmart um, and Mark Hoyman actually partnered with me on this initiative. And our job was to understand Kmart, as you well know, is, has consistently been a challenge brand over the years. Um, they brought us in to um, understand their top 25 EBITDA stores and, uh, and try to get some insight okay. why they were outperforming all the others. Some of them were obvious, you know, mm -hmm. like there was not another big box retailer within 20 miles of this university in Santa Barbara. So the, right. obviously you're going to get that foot traffic because you don't have the competition. Key Largo was really interesting because it's a transient market. So evaluating the trade area, you can do that. But the majority of the people in Key Largo were not full-time residents. They were either second home residents or people that were vacationing and specifically coming right. from the, a lot of them coming from the Northeast. So, we looked at um, we looked at what was going on, and we looked at the dynamics of kind of this transient market, and then we looked at the merchandise that they were selling in the store. And oftentimes, you'll see big box retailers who go, "Okay, every store we're going to put the same merchandise in every store," without right. adapting to your local environment, and again, understanding the dynamics of who your customers are. What we found is that mm -hmm. most of their customers were those people that were coming down on vacation. So you don't really need to be selling refrigerators or um, you know, vacuum cleaners, but what you need to be selling is fishing gear, fishing bait, sunscreen, coolers, beer. You know, If you're selling grocery, which Kmart started to get into kind of on the tail end, there's a certain right. product you're gonna be selling. You're not gonna be you know, selling things where people are gonna go home and cook big fancy meals because they're not at home. We also, and I always say, so, so mm -hmm. we help them identify the merchandise that they should stock in that store based off of the people that were coming into their trade area and the people that lived there because the people that live in Largo are fishing and snorkeling and doing all of that kind of stuff. So it was a really interesting exercise for them to go through to realize that all things are not created equal. And if you wanna maximize your value to the marketplace, you need to cater to the needs of the marketplace. And, and the other thing that I always say is research is only as good as what you do with it. And right. one of the things, so I always say, what are the implications of this information? You know, we've got these insights, what are we going to do with them? So what we proposed to them was, since you're not drawing a lot of traffic or, you know, the majority of your traffic from your full-time residents there, 
how do you get to these people? How do you make them aware that you're the go-to place once they get here? Mm -hmm. So we said, why don't you partner with the local hotels and Airbnb? And when somebody books a room at the local hotel or books an Airbnb, you basically say, if you want to send us your shopping list of everything you need upon arrival, right. we will have it delivered. It will be waiting for you in your hotel room. And right. Kmart time had a program where they had runners that could do that. So they could place their order. The runners would take it. The concierge would make sure it got into the hotel room. And voila, I arrive and life is good and I can hit the beach. So, right. Yeah. 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 Those types of things are important cool. too. So, anyway, it was fascinating. It was really Absolutely. fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this has been great. This has been great. Um, any, any, any kind of final words um, you'd be interested in kind of sharing, you know, sharing with, with the um, audience? Yeah. You know, I have this thing. We talked a little bit about this yesterday. I have this um, book that I love called The Five Love Languages. And I find that many people have actually read mm -hmm. that book a personal um, life enhancement book about how people can make their marriages better, their relationships, interpersonal relationships stronger. And I've long since said it's very similar with brands that you have to, so, which goes back to knowing your customer. You have to understand, in order to create that brand love, you have to understand the love language of the person you're speaking to. Because if my love language, right. I'll just give you a couple examples, is acts of service, and my customer's love language is quality time. And I think that if I do something nice for that person, um, that they're going to feel loved and that's not their love language, it's going to be meaningless to them. So there has to right, be that yeah. connection. Mm -hmm. You have to understand what is going to make your customer love you. Not just have lust for you, because that's short term, but love right. you develop a long-term right. relationship with your brand. So if I were, for example, we talked a lot about, you know, real estate developers and grocery chains. One of the first things I would do is I would dive into the community. If I was thinking about investing a lot of money in a local community, I'd have a mm -hmm. community hall. I would, I would talk to the people in the community, get out there and understand if I'm going to put a, you know, a, a grocery store in this shopping center or strip mall, whatever it is, I want to make sure I'm putting the right one in there. You know, do they right. want a big yeah. or jewel or do they want a very intimate plum market or, you know, uh, an earth fair or something that's, that's specialty. And you know what? I always say, if you want to know what people want, ask them and they will tell you and listen, you know, yeah. and yeah. back, back in with them. You know, don't just think that people don't, their, their um, needs and wants will absolutely evolve over time. So talk to them, ask them what they want, check back with them periodically to make sure A, you're delivering on their expectations and are their expert expectations shifting so you can be dynamic. Because in this day and time, as we have all seen, dy being dynamic is really critical, but it's important all the time, but especially in a situation like we're experiencing now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, this, this has been uh, fantastic. Just wanted to uh, thank you for your time. Um, you. And, and this information has been really, been really helpful. Um, what, what's, what's the best way for people to find out about uh, Madam and for people to, um, to be able to reach you? Um, yeah, if anybody wants more information, they can email me at hope 
at hello-madam, which is spelled M-A-D-A-M.com, no E on the end. But yeah, it's hope at hello-madam.com. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast. To email us your thoughts on today's conversation or suggestions for future podcasts, email us at pgr.com. Info at plantgrocery.com.